Hello everyone, this is Francesca and this is episode 25 of my podcast, Let Me Take You on a Psychology Adventure. And we're today we're talking about a really interesting topic. We're talking about happiness. And to be more specific, we're talking about some rules that you need to follow to be happy in life. So this is going to be part one of the no bullshit way to be happy, where we will talk about five such rules. So let's get straight into it. The first rule is super important. Having realistic expectations related to happiness. So let's start with this. You are not supposed to be happy all the time. I was talking to one of my friends the other day and he told me that he's not happy. And I paused for a bit thinking this can't be true because I know him and I've seen this guy happy many times before. So I asked him, but what do you expect? Like, what are your expectations related to happiness? How often do you want to be happy? To which he replied, oh, well, I want to be happy all the time. I should be constantly happy and enjoying my life, being fully present and living every moment 100% full of joy. <laughs> and I told him, well, of course you're not happy then, because your expectations about happiness are completely unrealistic. We're not hardwired. We're not supposed to be happy all the time. Even biologically speaking, our brain's function is not to make us happy, but to make us survive. And we're supposed to feel a variety of emotions and states, not just happiness. We need both highs and lows. We need contrast in life to even be able to appreciate happiness. Because if you're happy all the time, then your life becomes kind of like a straight line. And you won't even realize what you're, when you're happy, because it will be the norm. When you have contrast and experience lows, that's when you can truly feel the highs. One extremely toxic and dangerous habit that a lot of people unfortunately have is not wanting to have lows in life, not wanting to feel uncomfortable emotions such as sadness, frustration, anger, that are extremely important to be experienced in an authentic way. Wanting to be happy all the time makes you suppress your uncomfortable emotions because there is no such thing as negative emotions, which is really bad, especially long term, because these emotions that you don't want to feel don't actually go away as they would if you would have lived them and liberated them, but they stay inside of you and they start to control you. They bottle up and then erupt just like a volcano at some point. In our childhood, many times when we felt sad, our parents told us to stop crying and didn't know how to handle our emotions. What should have happened and what we would have needed in those moments is care and love 
and understanding, someone to just sit with our uncomfortable emotions. To know that we are loved even when we feel sad. And so we would have developed the belief that it is okay to feel sadness as an adult. And we would have become emotionally intelligent adults that are capable of expressing and processing sadness. However, if your parents didn't know how to let you feel your emotions in a healthy way, which is the case for most of us, even if they had the best intentions, like crying for losing something, losing a toy, or some reason that they thought it was stupid, you learn as a child that you're not allowed to feel sadness. And as a consequence, as an adult, when you're in a context where you have experienced a loss of, or the probability of a loss, like uh, maybe you lose a person or a job, which obviously leads to sadness, the tendency is to start controlling things, becoming a control freak and criticizing the behaviors of people around you usually. So let me give you a very simple example that I've seen in my life as well. Let's say um, your father develops cancer because he smokes a lot. If you don't know how to leave your sadness and express it in a healthy way, you will start criticizing him and say something like, look at how much you smoke, of course you developed cancer. Instead of saying, dad, I'm really worried about what is happening here and I'm afraid that I will lose you. The real emotion behind the critique is fear of loss. Expressing your sadness in an authentic way can actually help you connect in a very deep way to the other person because they will feel truly understood. When you react with critique or anger instead of sadness, which is the emotion behind this, you actually push the other person away. Another consequence of not knowing how to leave your sadness is becoming a work addict. You can see this all around you in society. Taking on too many tasks and trying to control the people around you, which comes from the desire to avoid loss and sadness. Also, people that suppress their sadness, which, is usually, which usually expresses itself in the chest area, as a bodily sensation, are more predisposed to health problems like strokes. So as a very simple piece of advice is just to let yourself cry, which will liberate the sadness and all the tension. Our tears contain cortisol, which is the stress hormone. So crying takes the cortisol out of your system. Another really important aspect is how you talk to yourself when you are sad. So remember when I told you how your parents should have reacted when you were a child and you felt sad? This is exactly what you should do with yourself when you are sad, which means that you need to talk to yourself as if you were your own loving parent. For example, let's say you break a vase that a uh, dear aunt gave to you. 
Most people's reaction is to start cussing at themselves, saying how stupid and clumsy they are. The healthy reaction is to let myself feel the sadness of losing an object that I cared about from a person that is special to me, for instance. And then telling myself that it is okay for me to feel this. It's okay for me to make mistakes. When you don't allow yourself to feel sadness, you become numb. So here is what to do. One, observe yourself and your body when sadness starts coming up. Two, accept sadness as an old friend that can help you digest losses. So just accepting the feeling. Three, talking to people when you feel sad can be extremely helpful as you feel this sense of connection instead of isolation. Four, if you don't have someone to talk to, you can also write about it. Have a journal where you can write down your thoughts. This also puts things into perspective. Five, when you are in the right context, allow yourself to feel the emotion, to feel the sadness. Maybe you start feeling it when you are at work or in a public context. So it's okay to repress it in that moment if it's not the right time for you. You can just lock it up in a box and unlock it when you're done, uh, when you're in the right context, like at home a bit later and you're comfortable, for example. Six, if you feel anger or frustration, as I gave you the example with the dad that developed cancer, try to observe yourself and realize that the emotion behind it's actually fear of loss of something important. Try to notice if it's really anger or if it's just sadness that is covered up with anger. And seven, if you feel like the emotion is overwhelming, it can be good to look for specialized help like a therapist or life coach. Remember that the only way out is true. The only way to deal with loss, with sadness, is by feeling it. Talking about highs and lows, this brings me to my next rule. Rule number two is we need acute stress in our lives. Acute stress is known as short-term stress, while chronic stress is defined as long-term stress. Acute stress stems from fighting with a loved one, receiving criticism from your boss, or having someone break into your house, for instance. While chronic stress stems from working in a toxic environment every day, or fighting with your spouse constantly. This is the type of stress that seems never-ending and, and that can have a very negative impact on your health. There's a very bad messaging that stress is deliberating bad and should be avoided. But in reality, stress puts us in a forward motion and propels us towards action. The reality is that the body is designed to have an enhanced response to experiences of stress and encouraging adversity in goal-related efforts. Benefits of stress are the fact that it narrows focus, 
it increases attention, it speeds the rate of processing information, anabolic hormones which help the body grow muscle and learn. Stress can also enhance the sense of connection to values and connection to others. Stress is paradoxical and complex, but we should question the role of mindset about stress in shaping a response to stress. If you view a stressor as more of a challenge and less of a threat, brain and body responses is, the brain and the body response is more adaptive. Ask yourself, at the core level, do you view stress as something that's bad and should be avoided or as a natural and going to enhance us? People who view stress as an opportunity for growth experience better health outcomes, better well-being, higher performance. Three steps to adapt to stress and to have an enhancing mindset is one, to acknowledge that you're stressed, first of all, to own it, see it, and be mindful about it. Two, to welcome the stress is that stress is something that you care about. So it is an opportunity to connect with something that you care about. And three, use the stress response to achieve the thing that you care about, not spend your effort getting rid of the stress. To quote Dr. Andrew Huberman, stress is a generic system used to mobilize our other systems in the brain and body to respond. Stress is simply a hormone-regulated physiological response to stressors, which are things that stress. This means that the general response to stressors does not differentiate between mental and physiological stress. So in other words, the stress system doesn't distinguish between physiological and psychological stressors. For acute stress, the main hormones that regulate the stress response are epinephrine, which is also known as adrenaline or norepinephrine, which is a fast-acting stimulator, also known as the arousal hormone, and cortisol, which is a slower-acting hormone that is known as the stress hormone. These hormones are how the sympathetic nervous system regulates the fight-or-flight response. Heart rate increases, rate of breathing increases, and perceived energy increases. Acute stress is necessary and should be encouraged. It's especially useful if you do sport or exercise but should be managed so that it does not turn into chronic stress. Chronic stress, as I said, is like long-term, is for more than a couple of weeks, more than a couple of days. So basically, acute stress is for a few hours to a few days, medium stress is a few days to a few weeks, and chronic stress is longer than a few weeks. So this is what, something that you should avoid. You can facilitate recovery from acute stress to prevent chronic stress and chronically high cortisol levels with stream, very simple strategies to encourage the parasympathetic nervous system activation. You can't control your physiology and your hormones, but you can control systems that massively affect them. It's also, it's hard to control your mind, but using your mind, if you're stressed or tired, it's, it's um, 
So it's difficult to, for instance, channel gratitude, peace, other important mind mechanisms, but by using your body instead of your brain, we'll be able to free the mind and to speak more clearly, to control the muscles, the face, the jaw, and generally relax. So firstly, the most effective tool to recover from stress is actually very simple. It is quality sleep. Another, have you ever experienced like you're stressed, you have a lot of uh, cortisol in your system, you're very anxious, and then you just take a nap, you go to sleep, and the next day you're all good. Sleep uh, has a very, very good effect on helping you process your emotions. Another applicable tool is to downgrade the stress response. To downgrade the stress response is breathing. When breathing at rapid rates, typically associated with stressors, the sympathetic nervous system is activated. But when you um, start breathing slower, there is more parasympathetic dominance. So one such strategy is to slow breathing rates and to stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system. It is also called the uh, physiological site. So taking a large inhale through the nose and then another large inhale through the nose before exhaling, followed by an an extended exhale through the mouth, repeating this several times. This strategy can increase oxygen levels in the blood and slow the heart rate, helping the parasympathetic nervous system take over. Lastly, a key strategy to managing stress is establishing and connecting with a healthy social uh, support network. This is because spending time with people you have a deeper, more positive connection with releases serotonin, which is a neuromodulator hormone that increases the feeling of well-being and helps with sleeping and digestion. So this is also the parasympathetic nervous system. All right. Rule number three is taking care of your body. Sport, sleep, and nutrients. Super important. Until you're sleeping long enough and deeply enough, 80% of the nights of your life, you're functioning suboptimally. One of the most challenging parts of getting your body to settle down for sleep is turning off your thoughts. It's hard to get any rest at all if your mind is racing about work and about another million other stressors in your life. So yoga nidra is a form of guided meditation that aims to turn off your thoughts and to aid relaxation. There are free scripts available on YouTube. There are yoga nidra scripts that last about 20 minutes and they involve some breathing and some meditation type stuff. So basically they teach you to turn your thoughts off, which is really wonderful. Also, exercise and proper diet are the two of the biggest things to look at when assessing your sleep quality. 
Andrew Huberman, I also make references to this guy because he's amazing and I really recommend listening to his podcast, suggests doing cardio workouts in the evening as opposed to weightlifting. So ultimately, he says you should do what you're most comfortable with. But there are some benefits to getting your workout done in the morning and saving cardio for the evening. So if you do um, weights, exercises, do it as early in the morning as possible and then go for a run or any other kind of cardio exercise that you enjoy in the evening. It takes a lot of energy for your body to digest food and ensuring you take your last bite of food at least two hours before laying down for bed is recommended. Also, intercourse or sex does in fact increase the quality of your sleep. So orgasms in men and women are directly related to the sympathetic nervous system, which is responsible for stress. In the post-cortical period after sex, the parasympathetic nervous system comes back and promotes a state of deep relaxation. So you've probably seen why a lot, that a lot of people, after they have an orgasm, they're more tired and they want to go to sleep. If you're a normal person in today's society, um, chances are you bring your phone with you to bed, which is thought to be a thing to avoid. Uh, especially when our phones and television are what keep us connected to the worlds and events, it can be very hard. But using, not using your phone or any kind of uh, blue light at least two hours before you go to sleep is very important. While there is definitely truth in that this influences our ability to achieve a good night's sleep, doc Dr. Huberman explains that proper sleep actually begins in the morning. So really an excellent night's sleep uh, begins in the morning first. So the first thing in the morning that we should do is 10 to 30 minutes to spend it outside. So after you wake up, don't check your phone, don't do anything, go outside for at least 10 to 30 minutes. And depending on how bright it is, you can stay more or less. So it can do, if you can do it safely, if you wake up before the sun rises, turn on bright lights, then go outside. Once the sun rises, if you have no access to sunlight, use a daytime simulator or similar like a ring light system or anything with a lot of blue light in the morning. Getting the right light at the right time sets the clock in all of your body cells, which in turn will affect many different functions in the body. It stimulates the cortisol you need for energy and focus, and it has positive effects on everything from sleep, energy, and immunity to appetite, mood, and so much more. Also, caffeine is such a regular a regular part of our lives, it's easy to overlook it when you try to understand why you aren't sleeping well. But here some people have no problems drinking a cup of coffee at four in the afternoon and then go to sleep soundly. This is like my dad. He can drink a cup of coffee right before sleep and he actually sleeps better. Others, however, may struggle to get to sleep when they uh, 
last had caffeine at 10 a.m. in the morning. So all bodies are different and have varying reactions. So you must know where your body lies in its reaction to caffeine and plan accordingly. Moreover, your body needs uh, several vitamins and minerals to create dopamine. So in recent years, more and more research suggests that what we eat directly affects how we feel. So there are some very important nutrients that affect our mood. And I'll talk about some of these. The first one is L-tyrosine, which comes from high protein foods such as soy products, fish, chicken, nuts. Then we have tryptophan. Sorry if I I mispronounced this. Um, So serotonin is made from the amino acid tryptophan. Therefore, consuming tryptophan, which comes from rich foods such as tofu, seeds, pineapple, are shown to decrease depression and anxiety. The next one is omega-3. So a study with depressed patients consuming a diet rich in EPA, which is a type of omega-3, showed that uh, EPA can improve mood and effectively... uh, as effectively as certain antidepressants. This omega-3 comes from fish, flax seeds, walnuts, chia seeds, or omega-3 eggs. The next one is probiotics, which usually comes from um, uh, fermented foods such as yogurt, kimchi, miso soup, and kombucha. But pay attention because consuming too many probiotics um, usually in supplemental form, can be also harmful. Then we have vitamin B. And the most important vitamin Bs are B9 and B12. B9 you can get from dark green leafy vegetables like spinach, broccoli, um, romaine lettuce, asparagus beans, peanuts, avocados, fruits. And B12 usually comes from dairy products like fish and meat, but you can also get it from seaweed. If you're vegan like me or vegetarian, you should take supplements usually. Foods that we should avoid and that impact our mood negatively are sugar, because what happens after you eat sugar is that you have a dopamine rush. So you may say, okay, I feel so good after eating this chocolate. Right, So you have a dopamine rush, but then you have a crush in dopamine. So you will actually feel worse after eating a sh- high sugary food than, when you f- than you felt before. The other one is processed foods uh, that contain high levels of saturated fat. So one rule of thumb, we want to eat foods as close to the original state as possible. Now let's move on. The fourth rule is regulating your dopamine system. I have an entire episode dedicated to dopamine and how it works, so go check it out for a deeper understanding. But I'll talk a little bit about it. Dopamine is one of the most powerful molecules we all have inside of us because dopamine is the chemical that's responsible for pleasure and motivation. Most of us are in a constant search for dopamine and, and pleasure, but then um, it's extremely. But an extremely important finding was that too much dopamine, too much pleasure experienced, 
too often without the prior uh, requirement for effort in order to achieve that pleasure or dopamine is actually terrible for us. It lowers our baseline level of dopamine and the potency of all experiences. Immediate, immediately after you experience something pleasurable or have a craving satisfied, as I was telling you about the chocolate example, and dopamine is released, your baseline level subsequently drops because your body is trying to balance out the increase you just had. While you would think you're going to feel really good after you do something pleasurable because of increased dopamine, that is not the case. Release ultimately leads to lower levels. To put it simply, the more often you engage in activities that spike your dopamine, the, hard, the harder it becomes to experience the same levels of satisfaction in the future. All the spikes you get these days in our modern world actually lower your baseline level and can leave you feeling down. And I'm talking about social media, TikTok, listening to music all the time, all these dopamine producing activities actually make you feel down because they decrease your baseline. If you're stuck doing a dopamine releasing activity repeatedly, a break is recommended to reset your dopamine baseline. When dopamine fasting, you're trying to reduce exposure to as much dopamine as possible, increasing activities as, as possible. So you can do intermittent fasting, which means um, taking breaks from eating. You can find a lot of research with the benefits of this. Um, and this can alter your dopamine sensitivity. Because having stacked activities that also having stacked activities that increase dopamine is not the best. So for instance, doing a workout while listening to music and drink and having an energy drink before that is bad because all these increase the expectation that the next workout will be will produce the same excitement. Uh, so the workout, you won't be able to just get dopamine from the workout itself. You will need all these activities and your dopamine and you'll become less motivated in time to work out. So it's better when you work out or that you can apply this to any activity, like spending time with a certain person. For instance, if you're always, let's say with a lover, if you're always doing very, uh, like high dopamine producing activities, you will not be able to enjoy your time just spending time with that person. And if you don't have these lows that I was talking about, you won't be able to appreciate the highs. Now, studies have shown that cold exposure can have the same increase in dopamine levels as cocaine, but without the corresponding drop below baseline. Uh, so AKA the crush. In fact, it helps strengthen the baseline. Cold exposure such as cold shower or a cold plunge can help raise your dopamine uh, baseline. So cold exposure has been a health and wellness solution for as long as history has been documented. It's been mostly recently popularized by Wim Hof, if you've heard of him, also known as the Iceman. Also, dopamine can help, um, can help you with reaching your goals to accomplishing your goals. And contrary to popular beliefs, dopamine is not released when you get um, 
a reward, but released when you recognize that you are on the right path to get a reward. Dopamine shapes your brain so that when released, you naturally want to continue down that path. The pleasure you get from dopamine is obtained not by accomplishing your goal, but by striving towards them. And this takes me to my fifth rule, which is having goals that are long-term and both short-term. Research has shown that personal goals that are congruent with your interest increase your emotional well-being. This means that working on your goals makes you happy. Having big goals that are hard to achieve is important because it gives you a sense of meaning and direction in your life. However, it's important to also have short-term goals that you can achieve so you stay motivated and don't get discouraged looking at how much time and effort it will take to reach the long-term goal. So, for example, let's say your long-term goal is to have a multi-million dollar company. This is something that maybe you'll achieve in 10 to 20 years. Every three months or every year, you need to have smaller goals that will help you achieve that long-term goal. Like, let's say this year, I want to have a profit of 100,000 or 10,000. Or let's say that your long-term goal is having the body of your dreams. This will take about five years to achieve. You need to have short-term goals like going to the gym three times a week. And one extremely important thing that you need to do is to recognize these short-term achievements and to celebrate them. So a powerful technique that you can use is writing at the end of the day all the small achievements that you had that day and why you are proud of yourself. So for example, I'm proud of myself that I went to the gym. I'm proud of myself that I cleaned my room. I'm proud of myself that I ate healthy today. I'm proud of myself that I walked my dog, that I wrote my essay. Don't diminish these small achievements thinking that they're not important. Write down everything that you did that day and appreciate yourself for that. A lot of people, they even when they achieve like long-term goals, like big goals, they don't celebrate. They don't appreciate themselves. They wait for others to appreciate them instead of internalizing yourself and just saying, congratulations, wow, I'm really proud of yourself. This is extremely important. And this is also a powerful self-love tool. Also, stop trying to make your life easy and take on new challenges. Strangely, life gets harder when you try to make it easy. Exercise might be hard, but never moving makes life harder. Uncomfortable conversations are hard, but avoiding every conflict is harder because it destroys your relationship. Mastering your craft is hard, but having no skills is harder. Easy has a cost. It's important that you have something exciting to look forward to always as well. Some people attach reward to do an activity they don't like. So, for instance, a drink after a workout, a chocolate bar uh, before studying, also known as extrinsic rewards. That's a really bad approach. 
Instead, trick your brain to enjoy the activity itself, which is intrinsic reward, not the reward. So, for instance, have you ever worked on a project where your primary motivation was seeing the final product or reward, but when you finished, you didn't feel as good as you thought you would? You need, pu- you need to put your pleasure in the effort process rather than the completed project or external reward. So you know the saying, enjoy the ride, not the destination. So this was the end of part one of how to be happy the no bullshit way. And we will be making a part two shortly next week. I hope you enjoyed this podcast episode. If you have any questions, please feel free to DM me here or on Instagram. Thank you so, so much for listening and have an amazing day. Bye.